I am going to bring us back on track this morning as we walk through Mark's gospel again. Uh, we had been, we had actually jumped ahead of to a few places while we celebrated uh, Easter and the resurrection, but I, I want us to finish what we started there. Um, one of the big pros to studying a singular book in the Bible is that we learn uh, biblical truth uh, in context to what actually happened and to what physically took place. Uh, it makes your evangelism of the gospel more powerful because you know the setting uh, in which something was taught. You know, when we know scripture but don't know the context into which something was taught, often what happens, and I see this a lot, believe it or not, I see it a lot in the pulpit too. Um, I see things, uh, a misuse of scriptures. I see uh, where people misinterpret scriptures because they don't use it in context. I remember uh, pastoring at a church and uh, they were in between pastors and uh, waiting on who they were going to elect as their pastor. And a man came in and began to preach to them and trying to give them hope. He spoke the words of Jeremiah, which says that God would give them a shepherd after their own heart. And I remember thinking, that's true. And that's awesome. If you only read that verse, that is awesome. That's an awesome promise from God that God would give us a shepherd after his own heart and that would take care of us and nurture us. What he didn't preach, and he probably should have preached, is the scripture before it and the one before it that says that leads up to the why you get a pastor or a shepherd after God's own heart is because you become a people that repent. <laughs> that's not a popular message. The message sounded better if I just teach you the good things and I just leave out the bad things. I tell you all the promises of God without any of your, your responsibility whatsoever. A lot of times pastors will do that. A lot of times when we fail to preach something in context, we don't give you the full truth. By the way, I call that a lie. This is how the devil can quote something to Jesus and it not be right. Three times, when the devil talks to him and he eventually quotes scripture to him, the scripture that he quotes is right, but it's a misconception of the scripture. It doesn't work for that moment, and Jesus rebukes it at that moment. If we don't learn things in context to what is actually happening and what's being said, why is God saying what he's saying? Why is this interaction happening? Which, when we teach in context and when we teach biblical books, this is what we uh, understand. So I believe it's important in studying books of the Bible to study things in context. And this way, when you reflect back on what you know of the scriptures, you'll have a better understanding of why things were said uh, and what Jesus was actually addressing so that when you come across that moment and you begin to evangelize or tell somebody about something, it'll be correct. <laughs> it won't be just this fruitless scripture that you threw out there that sounded really good in the moment. You know, like a meme scripture where you just like throw out this thing and it's like you don't get any of the, the backstory to it. You know, my favorite is whenever like one of these where it gets often misquoted is, is uh, in Habakkuk when he says, you know, Habakkuk basically prays, Lord, I want to see you like the days of old, basically. And then he goes on to say, uh, and then God tells him, behold, I will do a new thing to the likes of which nobody's ever seen. And I've seen that thing. Like, that's a coffee mug scripture. Behold, God's going to do a new thing to the likes of which nobody's ever seen. But nobody wants to keep reading past that. Because if you read past that, what God's going to do, the new thing, is bring in the Persians and bring judgment upon the, the, the children of Israel. <laughs> now, when I bring that into context, 
We don't like that scripture. You don't want that on your coffee mug, right? You, that one where God brings judgment in. And, and what that new thing is going to be is to bring you to a place of lowliness and repentance. Oh, you want revival? Okay, I'll give it to you. And when I stomp that mud hole in you and you feel like this big, that's going to be the perfect place for you to repent. <laughs> okay, wait a minute. I don't, that's not very uplifting. That's not so like that. It's, it's weird. When we read things in context, it changes the way we look at scripture. It's easy to pull one scripture out and make it seem like that's what we should build our life around. But that's foolishness. It's foolishness. So today we're going to turn to Mark chapter 9. We're going to begin at verse 33. And I'm going to give you a few minutes to turn there. I grew up with two brothers. I am the oldest of the bunch. I spent a great deal of time in trouble. While my other brothers were relatively the kids, you know, you want as parents. They're good kids. Uh, for the most part, they were easy to parent. Uh, they didn't require much. Uh, they're pretty easy going. They, they made good grades. They, they stayed out of trouble. They, uh, they were always like on the honor roll, that kind of stuff. Me, I'm that like, you know, I, I'm, I think it was my uh, type of people that created that sticker that says, I beat up your honor roll kid. You ever seen that sticker? Yeah, that's probably like my, that's like who I was, right? Which is like my brothers. I basically beat up guys like my brothers, right? I love my brothers, right? But they were pretty easygoing, easy kids to parent, the kind of like you hope you get, right? Uh, but in contrast, man, I was a handful. My parents were always having to sit down with the principals, uh, always having to sit down and talk about how awful their kid was. What a, what a great <laughs> childhood for my poor parents, right? My youngest brother, Joe, he was, he was always the baby of the bunch, and often John and I thought uh, that he was kind of the favorite. He was, always, he was like a little sickly kid when he was born, so they're always like babying him. He's still baby today, right? And like, so we would have that conversation. Man, all they do is like Joe morning, but it kind of bonded me and John there for a while, but eventually kind of, you know, John is so much and Joe were so much alike in that they were good kids that kind of eventually bonded them two together, and I just ran solo after that. But I mean, we have that discussion about, you know, who is the favorite? Who do you think is the favorite? You ever had that conversation with a sibling or somebody like I think I'm I think mom and dad loves Joe more than he loves anybody. I think all right. Which sibling is loved the most? Sure, you know, you know that you're loved and that your parents, you know, but but we all kind of have that idea. Do our parents show a little bit more affection to, to one more than the other? My my daughters think that Reese is the most beloved uh, child that we have. Uh, there's many a times where we've called Reese the Joseph child where we're pretty sure if we leave him alone for too long that Rachel and Reagan will sell her into slavery. <laughs> because I'm sure this is what they think as well. Right? It's just how we think. It's how we, it's how we think, right? There, this is, and, and then here's the, the funny thing is, this is really where we find the disciples uh, today in Scripture having a discussion as to the, their basically importance or their part to play in the plan of God. They're discussing their specialness or their uniqueness because Jesus, after all, picked them. Pretty important, right? So this morning, the scriptures are going to take a peek into the heart of man. They do. And it's going to expose kind of how we think or maybe what we don't think. And then it's going to set us in our place a little. Um, it's going to seek to humble us this morning, so I hope you're ready. I'm, I'm not going to be a hammer this morning, but I am going to try to be soft because I think the Scripture hammers all by itself. Mark 9, verses 33 through 37. Mark 9, 33 through 37. 
After they arrived at Capernaum and settled in a house, Jesus asked his disciples, what were you discussing out on the road? But they didn't answer because they'd been arguing about which one of them was the greatest. He sat down and called the 12 disciples over to him and said, whoever wants to be first must take last place and be the servant of everyone else. Then he put a little child among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, anyone who welcomes a little child like this one on my behalf welcomes me. And anyone who welcomes me welcomes not only me, but also my father who sent me. Now let's pray real quick. Father, uh, Lord, this is a small word, but Lord, as it unfolds, may you take the things that fall out, the seeds, as if you will, the Lord of the fruit of this, as, as we as we peel it back and the seeds fall out, God, plant them in our hearts this morning, God. Teach us, grow us, mature us, God. Show us, open our eyes, give us a vision of what we are to see so that we may respond accordingly. In Jesus' name, amen. So it's funny to me that through the very first sentence, we are made aware of like God's looming presence. He's always there. He hears us even uh, when we've done our very best to hide our conversation from him. The disciples, had, they had been uh, discussing this conversation uh, outside of ears distance. And, and Jesus didn't hear them, but he's, he's, he's pretty coy here how he responds. He asked them a question to which he already knows the answer to. Even so today... Jesus is always asking questions to which he knows the answers to. You ever figured that out yet? When Jesus and you hear the Spirit of God talking to you and he asks you a question, you know that God already knows the answer, right? The constant acknowledgement of this throughout Scripture as to the presence of God hearing all and knowing all, it's a wonder to me why people don't live in a constant fear and reverence of God more often. I think we'd think twice about the things we say and the things we do if this fact was more in our face. God's presence is always here. This morning, we don't have to invite God in. God is here. God is here. When you leave, he will be in your car. When you go home, he will be there. When you go to the place you think no one else can see you, he's there too. Maybe what's more terrifying, to me at least, is our complete ignorance or our lack of awareness to the presence of God. How we conduct ourselves because we think he's not here. The things we say and do because we think he's not around. How can we pray ever for some sweeping move of the Spirit and can yet not acknowledge his presence in our daily walk? The presence of God isn't summoned. No, it's always here. I'm going to give you, if you're taking a note, this is a note taker right here. In revival, in revival, it is not God that is moved to be near us. It is the awakening of our cold hearts to his always existing presence. Let me say it again. In revival, it is not God that is moved to be near us. It's the awakening of our cold hearts to his always present Holy Spirit. 
the revelation here is subtle, though, right? I mean, like, it's not like God just threw that information out. Hey, let's have a talk of theology about my presence. Uh, by asking a question to which he already knew the answer to, and yet he had never heard their conversation, the fact that he knew without being there is trying to tell you that God is always there. You don't have a private moment with your friends. God, hang on. I'm going to put you on hold while I jump on the other line. Doesn't exist with God. God's like, I'm on that line too. All right? It, listen, every call between you and your friend is a three-way call. <laughs> There's no such thing where you get off the line with God. He hears all, knows all. It's just the way it is. As my wife uh, so easily says to my children when they give her that angry face, yet they never say a word, you just see the face, right? She tells them all the time, Jesus hears you. It's like they haven't even said a word. And I think it confuses them sometimes, but like my wife knows that face. My wife knows that there's a whole conversation going on in their brain. And she, she doesn't hear what you say, but she could see it in your face, you know. And so my wife like, Jesus hears you. I might not, but Jesus hears you. She, he knows what you're saying. All those cuss words, whatever you're trying to say right now, Jesus hears you. Jesus is there. He's in your subtle thoughts. He's there in the quiet recesses where you think no one's listening. He isn't fooled by the imposter you created on the outside because he knows the human being to which he created. He's trying to set you free, guys. So he asked them, right? What are you discussing out on the road? So what do you say? What are you telling because you know the conversation's pretty vain. I mean, you know the conversation's petty. Well, I'm the awesomest. I'm the awesomest there is, right? I mean, like, that's what they're saying. They're, they're like, I'm the number one, man. I'm, like, around him all the time. Dude, I laid my head on his chest. Nobody else has done that. Yeah, because nobody else wants to get that close to another man, all right? That doesn't make me not the number one around here. I ask more questions than anybody. Leaders ask questions. It's got to be Peter, right? Peter's a number one, right? I mean, come on. I mean, that's what they're doing. It's vain. It's petty. I mean, they know it. You know how I know that they know it? They choose not to say anything. <laughs> right? You ever know when you're busted, right? You just shut up. I'm not going to say anything. <laughs> you can just think whatever you want because I'm not giving you anything else. Right? Uh, and here's the thing is they, they're not going to own up to it, but this is Jesus. They knew Jesus well enough to know that he would think about <laughs> what he would think about that kind of talk. Right? That's why they didn't say it. They know Jesus wouldn't approve of that. Interesting, right? That they're talking in ways that they know Jesus wouldn't approve of, and yet they're the friends of Jesus. They knew he wouldn't like that kind of talk, and yet they were talking that way anyway. By the way, some of this should bring you comfort that even the guys closest around Jesus act like us. Okay? These are human beings that do human things. And if there's hope for them, man, is there hope for us. Amen? And see, there it all is again, right? That's the thing we have in commonality, that old sinful nature working against the character of God. God is trying to change our mindset. So in front of God, we're one way, but when we think he's not around, we're kind of another. And just like that, all of us, adults included, we're like rebellious teenagers, which is to say we have moments of adolescent immaturity. We do. I mean, why do kids lie? Because they learned it from you. You told them lies. You know you have. Don't go over there. It's going to hurt you. When really you just, I don't want to get up out of this chair. <laughs> right? Sure, this tastes great. No, it doesn't. 
I've heard, I've, I listened to Sam Chan one time. He said, every pastor lies. Every pastor's been to somebody's house and ate somebody's food they hated and never said a word. Like, no, this is the best thing ever. This is so good. Please, we are never going back there. <laughs> lies, 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 lies. Right? Everybody, you wonder where they land? All of us possess this adolescent immaturity. It's like we never grow up sometimes. Sin is a disease that we've grown ignorant to since we've uh, never known life without it. We don't know life without sin. We don't know life without lies. We don't know life without love that's twisted. We don't know life any other way than sin being in it. But the ministry of Jesus is pretty plain. He's come to bring sight to those that are blind. And sin blinds us. Sin blinds us from seeing that all lies are bad. Even the uh, uh, what we would call a white lie or whatever. It's all bad. 99% truth is still a lie. That's still bad. It's still bad. And so for Jesus, who has these disciples, who this is his ministry, it's time for him to also set them free. He has to bring them out of blindness into the light. Well, yeah, they all can see they're not technically blind, but you know what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about blind to things that are happening, blind to the lies, blind to the vanity, blind to the pride, blind to the arrogance. They didn't answer because they were arguing about all which were, were who were the greatest. And it's so arrogant and so prideful. And where does this idea come from? I mean, if we really think it through, however, it's not difficult to see how they ended up here. While relatively they all come from humble beginnings, I mean, fishermen and, and tax collecting, I mean, they have all this kind of beginning there. They could all see that there was something special going on, right? After all, they were with Jesus every single day. I mean, that's pretty special. You got to feel like you're not normal when you hang out with Jesus and see crazy things all day. They personally witnessed unbelievable miracles. They saw Jesus literally set medically blind people <laughs> free. That they completely can see now. Deaf people completely can hear now. People who were ravaged by what we would call insanity or demon possessed, completely normal now. They walked on the water. They saw the storms beckon at him. Like their whole life with Jesus turns into stuff of legend. I mean, right? I mean, like really it's crazy far out stuff. So the fact that Jesus like chose them makes you feel kind of special. Because you get to see stuff nobody else gets to see. You get to do stuff nobody else gets to do. Yeah, it's scary as all get out most of the time. They're like terrified most of the time. Think about it. I mean, from the very beginning, if they hang with him, they're considered zealots and maybe against the church at the time, right? And at the end, they're already like, I don't even know that guy because this thing could cost me my life. I mean, it's a, it's a dangerous adventure for these guys. They got to listen to all his sermons. They were there when he prayed. They spent more time with him than anyone else. They must be the greatest, Amongst themselves, this conversation was really just playful banter. Can you imagine it kind of being a funny thing like that, like I was saying earlier? Man, I laid his head on my chest. Man, that's weird. I ask questions. I'm around him all the time. He's called me the devil at least once. Right? I mean, like, they have this playful banter going on. They're our friends. They, there had to be times, like, I, I, I have this, uh, maybe because I'm such a serious individual when I look at the Scriptures, but I try, like, uh, to enjoy it a little bit and think, these guys are also just guys. It's a bunch of guys sitting around a campfire in the middle of the desert. And I know, like, uh, while I'm comforted that Jesus is there to keep things PG, you know, 
one of the things that reminds me is there are a bunch of guys that are sitting here playful banner. I'm better than you. Uh-uh, I'm better than you. I mean, that is a funny talk going on. I'm, I'm, I, might, I don't know if I would have engaged in that kind of talk, maybe being scared of Jesus, but I definitely would have laughed a whole lot. I can, I can honestly say that. I would have laughed at that kind of talk a whole lot. That would have been funny talk to me. And just neat watching the apostles hang out with Jesus. And I had to think that they had to laugh some. Some of the greatest, I think, uh, images that I've seen like with, with videos and things like that when they've tried to portray Jesus, anytime I get to see Jesus laugh, you know that's good stuff, right? The fact that God laughs or that God has a sense of humor. There's too many crazy animals to know that God has a sense of humor, right? I mean, come on, man. There just is. Um, and so amongst himself, there's all this playful banner. However, when Jesus asks, hey, what are you talking about? It's like soul crushing. <laughs> oh, man, we are busted, right? And it's like you know you're done wrong and you're caught. Hmm, nothing. <laughs> what are y'all talking about? Nothing. I like it. They don't even say that because that would be a lie. So they just go. <laughs> it's just like, hey, I'm not going to say anything. We're not going to just going to let it elude, right? They knew how arrogant. They knew how vain it was. Even, they knew how that he would not approve, right? He, technically, he wasn't even supposed to hear it. I mean, that's, that's the thing, right? And Jesus, in correcting this behavior, doesn't lift his voice and he doesn't lift his hand. As bad as this, like, we, we kind of know they shouldn't be talking like this. But Jesus doesn't spank them. And, and, and he doesn't verbally confront them. He doesn't shout. He doesn't yell. Instead, he sits them down, and he uses the opportunity as a teaching moment. He sees their blindness. It's hard to get upset when they're just acting like normal human beings. I just act normal. This is how sinful beings act. They got pride in them. They got things. They got issues. They got stuff, man. This is how they play on. They act, they they are oblivious at times to the presence of God, listening to their every word. This is just how they act. And let this be a lesson to the church. What would, when when most would expect discipline, Jesus offers grace. Right? You know what you said was wrong. You know what you're talking about is wrong. And even though it's playful banner, it's not, it's not good conversation that builds anybody up, especially each other. Right? And so Jesus doesn't say, man, that's just wrong, devil. He doesn't do that, right? He doesn't, he doesn't say that thing. He doesn't get over here. I'm going to hammer you with the word of God. I'm like, he doesn't do any of that. He goes, sit down. Let me talk to you. And he never really says, points one finger out, does he? He just let me talk to you. Let me share with you something, a little insight, a little truth to the kingdom. It's a good teaching opportunity is what this is. And I don't know about you, but doesn't that fill you with hope? <laughs> I mean, really, doesn't it fill you with a sincere happiness to know that this is how God deals with us? He sees our immaturity, and rather than spank us, he sits us down and says, let me explain this to you. To me, it's unexpected. It's, it's a little mesmerizing. Uh, I'll be honest, it's what attracts me to him, makes me want to listen to him because he, he's not so harsh with me. Like, because let's be honest, like when I do something bad, especially as a kid who's very familiar with being bad, I got laid into. My dad had no shortage of the belt. And if he needed to buy new belts, he had a, he never had not had a belt. And he, if I did something wrong, 
I was definitely was going to get it twice. They'd give it at school, and they got it when I got home. Just how it was, right? You just had to know that's what was coming. You took it, but like Jesus doesn't offer that. Jesus is like the most strange father I think I've ever known because I haven't known a father like that at times. Although I do think my dad, like in all my discipline, was what I needed. And God obviously allowed it, so it was like his stamp of approval. But uh, God, as I get older, is not so quick to use the belt on me and is a lot more quick to just sit me down and go, let me talk to you. Let me talk to you. And today, whether it's the maturity or the change of age, that confronts me different. Because I expect, in all honesty, I expect physical pain. But what he gives me is he sits me down and goes, no, I'm not going to hurt you. I'm just going to try to show you something. And the way he treats me in the teaching moment makes my heart want to change. It's what attracts me to him. And so Jesus looks the same way as he, he, he looks at his disciples. He says, whoever wants to be first must take last place and be the servant of everyone else. So what he does is basically destroy leadership as we know it. He destroys leadership ideology in the sense of like business leadership. He turns it upside down, right? In the business world, the CEO or the chief executive officer, the president of the company is the leader and everyone underneath them does what they say. That's just the standard leadership structure in the military. It's the same way. High-ranking individuals that have been doing this for a long time that have massive amounts of experience are at the top. They dictate what needs to be done, and it's followed through all the way to the bottom. That's just normal leadership. That's how they do it today. However, Jesus turns this mentality upside down by saying that a godly leader, one that follows Jesus, leads from the bottom. Leads from the bottom. Christian leadership is done not through leading, but through serving, through following. It's, it's, it's so different for us. The pastor isn't the head leader of the church. The pastor, or my position, my, is here to serve you through the teaching of the scriptures and helping you come into the fruition of whatever God has for you. Period. I, I, I'll be honest, and I've said this before early on when we started the church. I don't know where this idea came where the pastor is supposed to have a vision and we're all supposed to go. Like nowhere in the Bible does it say one man's supposed to lead everybody. But there are multiple facets in the Bible that say that the man of God is here to equip the saints. That means that the sole purpose I would exist for is to help equip you to do the thing God's called you to do. I'm not here to tell you where to go. I'm here to serve you in your journey where you're already going. God has a vision and purpose for your family. God has a vision and purpose for you individually. My job is to say, what do you need? How can I help you? What can I do for you? My life as a pastor or as a leader, because I, if I want to be show you what it's like to be this, the servant, is to serve you and help you accomplish the things you're wanting to accomplish. That's it. Now, I understand why a lot of the churches do that. When they, when they throw in a vision, what they're saying is that God wants to help. I'm trying to help you do the things of God. I, I get that, and there's nothing wrong with those things. I don't want to put anybody down that does those things. But I think first and foremost, above that, the job of the pastor is here to equip you to do the work of the ministry. 
you're all mini pastors in and of yourself anyway, right? You have your own children. You have your own friend group. And believe it or not, you pastor your friend group. You are, you are the Jesus to your friend group. You are. God sent you, sent you to them to tell them to live a godly life around them, your family, all those things, right? I'm going to tell you right now, you want to see the whole world change tomorrow? Just save your kids. Just live for your kids and save your kids, and the whole church will be doubled in the next 10 years. We, you know, as pastors, it's one of the big challenges at most pastor conferences. They say, if, you'll just, if, you would just, if pastors could just save their kids, they'd double the church. So it's not, it's, it's not just a hard out in the, in the pew. It's hard in the pulpit as well, those two positions, right? I mean, the hope, my hope and prayer is that like my kids will go on to live a legacy long past me, and they would pass that legacy down. It's not about going to church. That's not the legacy. The legacy is being a servant of Christ. There are times where that will exist in the church, and there's times where that will exist more in the home or more at your workplace, right? This is the job. Being from the bottom, the church isn't a business. It's a community of servants. It's wonderful. That's a wonderful concept, man. I mean, Jesus really, he's on to something here. It's not a business where, he's, where everything's just run from the top down. It's a community of servants helping one another by being Christ to one another. So all church was meant to be is to be a gathering where we could come together, be uh, uh, build up our hope and faith in him, right? And then go out into the world and be a driving force of servants, right? Because here's what everybody's expecting. Everybody else is expecting a leader. Nobody's expecting a servant. Jesus came as a servant, not as a leader. He came as a servant. If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you must become small. And are you not reminded of John the Baptist when he said, I must decrease while he increases. If obedience is better than sacrifice before the Lord, then a servant we must become. We have to lower ourselves and humble ourselves to love others. This is the hard for this generation in this culture. To love others more than ourselves. Were you telling me I'm supposed to take care of somebody before I'm supposed to take care of me? I'm just telling you that's what the Bible talks about. And like the difficulty or hate the difficulty of that, that's scripturally truth. God calls us to it, to be, as Jeremiah put it, to plead the cause of the afflicted and needy. And then Jeremiah goes on to say, because that is what it means to know the Lord. That's what we're called to do, to plead the cause of the poor, to plead the cause of those who don't have while we have, to plead the cause of those who are lost, to plead the cause of the hurting, to plead the cause of the broken what about my life? What about my life? God is taking care of you. Get past you so you can focus on someone else. By the way, when you can't get past you, it's called idolatry. What you worship is yourself. It can't be you first. When you are first, Jesus definitely is not. When Jesus is first, others are second, and then you're third. By the way, when Jesus is first... You're already taken care of. You don't have to worry. That's why I said the sparrows don't worry about anything else. They, a house is provided for them. All these things are taken care of. Jesus is taking care of you. But it's hard if we don't humble ourselves. We don't see this, right? We don't see that our lives become forfeit as a servant. As Apostle Paul, leaving the chains to sin, he embraced this idea of being a bond servant. He eventually got to be calling. If you read it in the King James, it's a little better wording, but 
he, he says he eventually calls himself a bondservant to Christ, which means that he threw down the chains of sin, picked up the chains of Christ. Now, I, where sin held me and carried me everywhere, now the, now the chains of my new master carry me everywhere, which are the chains of Christ. Jesus doesn't stop here. He actually continues his train of thought, which to me it really brings it home. He says, anyone who welcomes a little child like this on my behalf welcomes me, and anyone who welcomes me, not only me, but also my Father who sent me. And this isn't a different direction when he says this kind of stuff. This is a continued thought from godly servanthood and humility. What is the significance of coming to Christ as a child or, and welcoming those who come like children? I heard a man once say it like this. Even Nicodemus or, or an Augustine, a, a, a great Christian, right, has to enter the kingdom not as an eminence or as a king, but as a spiritual baby, knowing little, bringing nothing, and needing all. I says, if you come like a child into the kingdom, is what he says. And he's, he's linked this together in serving, being the least. He's linked this together. This is how we all come into the kingdom. We all come into the kingdom as spiritual children. Think about it. What is a baby like? I mean, everybody in here knows. Babies are dependent. A baby must have faith that it will be fed. A baby has to have faith that it'll be clothed and that someone's going to provide for it every single day. A baby has to have the confidence in the one who's taking care of it. It doesn't have a choice. Every single day, a baby must depend and lean on someone else for its daily survival. A baby needs someone outside of itself. Can't just exist. I can't just be about me as a child. As well, I can't provide anything. I can't take care of anything. How many of you have ever threatened your like little one when they're little and they're being like smart? You're like, I will let you out of the car right here. You will walk back. And they're like, all right, I'm good. I ain't going to. Why? Because you know how far it is. You gonna, and you know you're a little kid. You ain't going to do. Mm-mm. Or that, maybe that's just me. I was a bad kid. I, I remember my dad telling me one time, you stay here at the car wash. It's probably like eight or nine. You stay here at the car wash. Don't leave. I'm washing the truck. Do not leave. You know, when they purse their lips and their just teeth stay still. Do not leave. And, man, I, I left, right? For like 10 minutes, 15 minutes, I turn around. Truck's gone. I wait like another 15, 20 minutes. I don't know where he went. Like, <laughs> I called home collect. And I live 15 miles outside of town. He answered the phone. <laughs> I told you. <laughs> Hang right there. I'll be back there in an hour. I got to come back in. Town for in about an hour. Okay. <laughs> like, you know what? I never left the car again. Ever. <laughs> Ever, man. You know what? I, you, know, you, you know, in that moment, you get pretty humble. You realize how, like, I'm just a little kid. <laughs> I, th- I think I'm big and bad sometimes, but I still need my dad. <laughs> you know? Because, <laughs> like, 12 to 15 miles is a far walk home. And I'm only like eight or nine at that point. You know, so I'm like, I'm just like realizing like I, like I need my parents. So I just got to better figure this thing out. You know, this whole childhood thing, I got to figure this thing out. And that's how we are, right? We're just helpless. We're helpless. Even when I was eight, you know, I'm like, help. There's only so much I can do. You know, luckily we live in a small town. Everybody knows everybody. Nobody's going to take me or anything like today kind of thing. But it's funny because my parents were like, ain't nobody going to take you. That's how my parents were. <laughs> 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 that argument never worked in my house. They're like, 
Yeah, they'd have you for like two days and they'd regret it, right? I mean, there's only so much we can do. We come as children before the Lord. We're in desperate need of his care. Without him, we, we, we die. We don't, we, always, we don't think that we would, but it's the truth. Without him, we wouldn't have anything that we have. If we have anything, it is through and by the grace of God. Without him, we're all helpless. And Jesus does know a little something about this. After all, don't we celebrate Christmas? Right? What happened at Christmas? Jesus is born. Jesus comes into this world as what? A baby. In my, in my studies on this text, I stumbled onto a Catholic priest who spoke of uh, Jesus or the, the baby Jesus in a way that I hadn't thought of. And I thought it was so good, so I'm going to quote it to you this morning. He said, Jesus invites us to descend with him to the manger at Bethlehem. He invites us as children, so little that no one would be able to recognize us, just as Jesus, the Son of God, was unrecognizable. Truly, Jesus had hid himself well. Practically, most of humanity was unaware of him when he arrived. In this, Jesus wanted to teach us a lesson in humility. He made himself little by the will of the Father. My brothers and sisters, we are also willing to become little, to become people who are easy. Uh, uh, to, are, are we will, he says, are we also willing to become little, to become people who are easy for God to manipulate? For that is what it means to make yourself little, to be flexible in the hands of God and let him do what he wants with us. Can we accept being little, hidden, and counted as helpless? Is this not our greatest problem? That we think of ourselves as too important, deserving respect and consideration? Are we willing to walk in the footsteps of Jesus? Do we accept the manger, poor, stripped, and without anything? Powerful, powerful words. What do we bring into this world? We know the answer. We bring nothing. Job said, naked I came into this world and naked I will leave. Basically what he was saying is, I came in with nothing and I am leaving with nothing. You bring nothing. I bring nothing. We're all small babies, all small children. Without God helping us and parenting us, we would all fall. Without God, we would not survive. We, were, we are powerless Yet our pride seeks to swallow us whole. After all, what do we bring to the table of the Lord? Really, what do we bring? We who rarely read our Bibles at times. We who have a hard time praying. We, like children, bring nothing. And we need everything. Everything. And to think any way else is really just foolish. The more scripture I read and the more I pray, the greater my view of my depravity of my lack of faith, of my neediness. The greater my view of these things leads to uh, my in-my-face need for God. I mean, the more I'm confronted with this, especially as I begin to do, you know, really study our text this week and really looking into this and really studying it and seeing what other people were saying and really just gathering these thoughts. This whole idea of coming into this place, we come like a child. We, if, if we'll just come like a child and that recognition of knowing I need everything, God. Lord, I need you not to leave the, the, the car wash, man, because I know that I, I can't make it home. I don't have a driver's license. I'm only eight. I can only do so much. 
My dad came for me. And sometimes I think God steps aside just so I'll appreciate him a little more sometimes. It's funny how life will teach us things about God. God will allow things through life to teach us. You know why you, you ever watch your kids when they begin to walk? They all fall, don't they? And usually, like, I don't know, if you're lucky, you get to walk on carpet. Some, some of these kids out here, in these, this, for whatever reason, this area doesn't like carpet very much. It's tile or stained concrete, one of those two, right? So kids today are like, suck it up, knees are going to hurt. Like, you know, kids be bruised up pretty good out here, right? <clears throat> I see some of the, you know, I got friends out there, Larry Wallace and them, they got a little two-year-old, you know, Bo, who walks barefoot through the grass. I'm thinking, boy, stickers. He's like, oh, he'll learn. Put them shoes on. <laughs> you know, and, and I think often I think that's God sometimes too, right? First of all, you need to walk, all right? I'm not going to spare you the pain of walking because if I do, if I carry you all the time, I'll palsy you. Your legs will shrivel up because you never use them. You know, your teeth fall out if you don't eat enough stuff that's hard because you have no need for them, right? God allows you to suffer through some things because it's what's growing you. You know, one of the things I've always taught about plants, uh, I don't have much of a green thumb, but one of the things that I always thought was neat is why people pull trees or pull plants to one side with a rope. Do you know why? Because trees long for the sunlight, right? And in, when you stress out a tree, it causes it to look to the roots for more nutrients and, and more water so it can grow stronger because it feels the distress, right? It feels the, the stressed outness of being pulled to one side. That's what the wind does, by the way. We do that to make sure the tree will live. So when the wind comes, it doesn't pull out the roots. It causes it to dig the roots in deeper because it feels the distress, right? So as trees blow wind, that's what causes the roots to go deep. Wind is the adversity of the tree. The tree wakes up every day and goes, I hope it's not windy. It stresses the tree out. But every time it's windy, it causes the tree to have to go into like a fight mode that causes its root to go down deeper. And the deeper it goes, the less the wind can hurt it. So what was a scary wind when it was little is nothing but a piddlio thing. It's like barely windy. But the little trees, they cry about it, right? Because to them, five, ten-hour wind is a lot. But a five, ten-hour wind to an oak that's been sitting there for 30 years is a joke. I might get my leaves brushed today. It's nothing. Same for you. What was hard 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 years ago is nothing. Remember when you stressed out? You know, uh, Reagan been trying to get her, her driver's license here for a while, and it's scary. I remember driving for the first time, uh, being a bad kid already, just being in the same car with the cops just feels weird, and so, and so like, I sat in there with the highway patrol officer, and I'm stressed out to the T, right, you know, and I'm like, I got to really drive good. Remember to use both hands and not just one, because I got yelled at all the time for that, just using one hand, and, and trying to get through that moment. It's a scary moment, right? But now I can't even remember a day where I hardly didn't drive. All these years later, and it's like, I've been driving my whole life. I don't know. I'm never scared of anything on the road, just about. You know, I'll drive on, like, uh, where my wife will lean more towards the outside of the road. I'm like, oh, man, I, I don't like the ditch. I'd rather stay towards the center. They can go get in the ditch. I just, I'm, I'm going to be more on the road. I want to be on the road, you know. And, like, I'm not even scared by the oncoming car. I remember when I first drove, I was like, oncoming car is kind of scary. A little scary. You know, there, there are things like that as we grow and mature. What, what, what bothered us then is like nothing now for us. So in the beginning, God's always, he's growing us. But the thing you have to remember is no matter how old you get, God's always taking you to school. 
Because you bring nothing and you have nothing. And you would have nothing if it wasn't for the Lord. You value today the things that he's given you. You're like, well, I worked for it because God opened the door for it. Because God gave you the brains to be able to handle it. Because God gave you the capacity to which to take it. Because God was there in those moments when you needed that shove, right? Because you fell down maybe a couple times, bruised your knee while you were walking, and God grabbed you up by the underarm, picked you back up, and launched you back out. And you fell down again, but that's okay. God grabbed you by the underarm, picked you up, and put you back out. And to not think otherwise is foolishness. When I see myself this way as a child, having nothing, I'm humble. In the light... It is more easy now to become that which Christ is reconciling us to. When we understand this is when we can start to understand what we are being reconciled to. Philippians said it like this. Paul said it, said, be humble. Think of others as better than yourselves. This is Paul. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. That though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges and he took the humble position of a slave and was born a human being. Paul says that is bizarre. He is a king. He could have entered into this world celestially with angels on high, but he chose to come. Think about the craziness of the God of the universe coming down, taking the form of a child, having to depend on human beings for its safety, for its food, to learn how to walk, to learn how to talk, to learn the words, to learn the culture, to learn... Think about that. The position that he was put in as king and that he chose it. He chose it. Do you think of the care of others more than you think of yourself? Do you look after the interests <coughs> excuse me, of others? Do you have, <clears throat> excuse me, I need some water. Do you have the same attitude <coughs> as Christ? <clears throat> Are you coming to the Lord like a child? Can you see your need for him? Let's bring the worship in. This morning we're going to worship a couple songs and <coughs> just starting to preach good too. <clears throat> this morning as we begin to worship him, I pray that we can have, or like maybe just come to grips of the generosity of God. That when we view ourselves like a child, we can finally start to see, there's my voice. We can find, it's weird that we can finally start to see what God does for us. And that's all really God was trying to do with the disciples. They're in the middle of talking their conversation. What he was trying to say, first of all, I see you. You know that, right? Like, I see you. I hear your conversations. I hear what you're saying. I see that. It's all folly. Think, think, about, think about these things. Think about being a child. Think about where you're at. When you think of these things and you start to believe like this idea, this I'm a child in the Lord. I bring nothing. God, it, God brings everything, right? You're humbled immediately because now you start to view your job is because God's blessed you. Your kids are because God's blessed you. Your life is because God's blessed you. Everything becomes because God, because God, because God, because God. Then, then all of a sudden that big tower that you've built to yourself 
where you said, I'm awesome because I've done all these things, it, it's demolished. It sits in the shadow of God's greatness. It's just demolished. And when you have that mentality, the same one that Jesus carried, the same one that Jesus was bearing, this is when we can finally love others more than ourselves. This is when we finally become the generous Christian, the, 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 the one that's not just generosity financially, but generous with everything else in our life, generous with our friendship, generous with our love, generous with our compassion, generous with our caring. Well, what if it hurts us? That's the whole part, right? Jesus served till it hurt him. By the way, he served till he died. And when God resurrected him, you know, the neatest thing about Jesus' life, and I think this should be a challenge to your own, it says that he came back and he taught on the kingdom of God for a while he was back. What did Jesus teach while he was alive? Kingdom of God. Will you say that? If you were to get a second chance in life, you're just going to keep living the same one? I think that might be the most neatest thing I think about Jesus. God, I've never heard that in this life. On this side of eternity, on this side of the earth, I've never heard anybody who got a second chance at life going, I'm just going to go do the same thing. Have you? <laughs> I haven't seen that book yet. I died and came back and am living the same life I've always lived. Not seen that title, not once, right? Everybody, even love Alan Williams, right? Alan Williams got this story with cancer and everything, right? He ain't living the same life. Matter of fact, he'll tell you, cancer brought him to the Lord. And he thinks cancer literally became the, one of the catalyst things in his life that just drove him to the Lord and has helped him do so many great things today. I mean, you want to hear a testimony where you praise somebody in your most difficult circumstances? Go talk to Alan Williams over at Chick-fil-A sometime. He's got an awesome testimony. Read one of his books. They're, they're great. He's doing a good job, right? God's shaking that man up. He's realized that even though I got all these things, I got nothing. And I'll be gone just like that. I got nothing. Anything I have, I have through the generosity of God, which has given me this so that I may be generous with others. Amen. Let's worship.